If you got a Bible, we're going to go be back in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, as we, uh, about three weeks ago, we started the second half of the book. And uh, so last night, uh, I just wasn't playing, I said this in the first service, they thought it was funny, some of you will think it's funny too, but uh, so like this weekend, our family's kind of like divide and conquer. Jay was playing a show in Nashville last night, and Robin and Lily and some of her friends went down to that, and Molly was singing in a concert at Walter State, so I decided to go with that, and I went with my mom, and we went to dinner beforehand, and she asked me what I was preaching these days, if I was still in, in, in the book of Ephesians, and I said, yeah, and like she's asking where I was, and all these kind of things, and uh, so I answered her and said, and kind of telling her, you know, how long we're going to be there and that kind of thing. She said, well, you know, there are 65 other books in the Bible, don't you? <laughs> so is your mom encouraging like that? <laughs> okay. So don't tell her I said that in church, though. And she doesn't use the Internet, and so it'll all be, be fine. So, um, um so as we've uh, been in, uh, in, in Ephesians and, and we've looked at, um, you know, what Christ has done for us and who we are in him and all these spiritual blessings that we're blessed with, we've talked about how that, that now we're kind of, you know, turning the corner and he's talking about what we need to do. There's a, there's a lot of commands uh, left in the book and we're going to look at a couple of them today. But, but these are commands that are related to how we relate to one another as the church. How we're to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. They relate to the unity that we have in Christ. And so... Uh, this passage, like a lot of passages in Ephesians, hits at, Ameri- at an American myth that, we, that being a Christian is just like me and Jesus. Do you know that's a myth? The reality is that, yes, while Jesus alone saves, and that salvation is certainly a personal uh, transaction experience between me and him, that the New Testament knows no version of Christianity apart from the body of Christ. And if you're going to claim that it teaches otherwise, you're going to have to rip a lot of pages out of your Bible. Christians around the world get this. I think sometimes Americans struggle with this. You know, we've been raised to be individualistic and kind of do our own thing. And so, you know, you have people that, uh, you know, just church online or just kind of hop from place to place. Or I don't like something about this church, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Or uh, somebody looked at me wrong and hurt my feelings, so I'm going to go uh, some, somewhere else. And, and that's not a biblical version of Christianity. I think the following story is a more biblical version of Christianity. You know, one of the, I think one of the most infamous places in American history is what uh, was called the Hanoi Hilton, where American POWs were housed and mistreated and tortured during the Vietnam War. And uh, they were in terrible uh, conditions. Like I said, they were tortured. Many of them were airmen who had sustained injuries when their planes uh, were shot down. I mean, they had broken bones and different injuries uh, that that went untreated. It it was a horrible place. And one of the most horrible things was that they were often isolated from one another, kept in solitary uh, confinement, which, uh, you know, research shows is one of the most 
horrific experiences that anyone can go through. You know, sometimes we like, get me away from people. I think I don't need people. But the reality is we spend any time in isolation, we would change our tune about that uh, very quickly. And uh, that they, um, they developed like a, a tapping kind of system based on Morse code to be able to communicate with one another when they were in isolation to kind of evade being caught uh, by their captors. And, but eventually, after a failed rescue attempt, uh, they, were, they were moved out into some other uh, camps where it wasn't quite as oppressive and uh, they weren't isolated. And they began to get a little bit more freedom in, in, in the sense they could talk to one another. They were actually, after a period of time, uh, allowed for someone to bring in a Bible that for an hour, of week, uh, an hour a week they could have access to a Bible. And so one of the men would furiously copy as much as he could in an hour and then they would memorize it. Uh, they were allowed to begin to have some semblance of church services. And uh, many of these uh, airmen, these soldiers, practiced their faith, found faith, or rediscovered their faith in, in Christ during uh, this experience. And so with that kind of as the background, I want to share with you a portion of a story that Chuck Colson shares in his book, Loving God. And he's relating this uh, from the perspective of a captain by the name of Tom Curtis. And it, and it occurred on Easter Sunday, 1971, in one of these POW camps. And he writes this, a quartet sang the old rugged cross, and then everyone joined in amazing grace. Curtis recited the version of the Passion of Christ that the men had, pieced, uh, had patched together from somewhat faulty memories. Uh, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate. And they stripped him and put a crown of thorns on his head and spit on him and hit him. And they said, crucify him. As he listened to the familiar words, Curtis thought of the experiences they had all shared, being bound Chained, spit upon, whipped, lashed to trees, stoned. Then someone handed Curtis several pieces of bread that had been saved from their previous day's rations. And they quoted the scripture and he took the bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Uh, do this in remembrance of me. The bread was passed and quietly eaten. Then Curtis uh, repeated the verses about the cup. This is my blood that is shed uh, for you. Uh, these men knew about blood, Curtis thought. Their own blood flowing from open wounds, from lacerations and ruptured eardrums, from torn out fingernails, blood that scraped through every makeshift bandage. Now they thought about Christ's blood shed for them. The cup of carefully sa saved seaweed soup was passed and used as all they had to celebrate communion. Someone quietly hummed amazing grace. As Curtis brought the cup to his lips, he began to weep. He wondered if they had the right to identify their own sufferings with the sufferings of Christ. But then wasn't their presence in this place, alive against all odds, a sign of Christ's continuing presence with them? He remembered that Christ had said he would found his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. They were part of that church, a part of the broken body of Christ in every way. Yes, Christ had prevailed, for here they were, worshiping him in the jungles of a world gone mad, 
relying on him, they had nothing less than the privilege of showing the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, his presence, the church, in what otherwise was a living hell. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. And so when we read the New Testament, understand that Christianity is not just personal, it's relational. And so as we come to this section of the book of Ephesians, as we've seen who we are in Christ, now we're going to see who we are together as Christ's body. And so the main idea that I gave you from Ephesians 4.1 that we spent a couple of weeks on that's really going to be kind of the rubric, so to speak, for what everything else that we talk about in Ephesians is based on. Really, I think it's just kind of a guide for how we live the Christian life. We talked about we live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. We live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. And so now in this passage, we're going to see how this relates to us as the body of Christ. So let's read Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 6. And the first part is really what we do. The second part is what he has done for us us. And so I'm really going to preach it kind of in reverse order when we get to the exposition of it in a minute. So Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, and one spirit. Notice the repetition of the word one here. Six times might be important. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so I think the main idea of this text, and this is what I'm going to preach to you today and try to make it practical for us, is that Jesus has made us one, so we are to live like we're one. That's what he's saying here. We're one in Christ. He's made us one as the church through the cross, so now we are to live like we're one. So let's ground this like the way it should be. Let's ground this in what Jesus has done for us, uh, what he has done, and then we'll talk about what he expects us to do out of what he's done. So we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 first. And verses 4 through 6 are pretty simple, right? You probably don't have to have a PhD in theology to figure out that he's talking about oneness here, right? I hope we could all agree on that. Uh, if not, we may have some issues. Uh, Jesus made us one. Let, let's look at how he uses the word one here. Six different ways. One body, the church, the body of Christ. Not any particular church, not any particular denomination, but all the redeemed, all the saints of all the ages, baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. There's ultimately one church. So we're one body. And then he says there's one spirit. And so he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And here, I think, is the particular significance in this context. Uh, we've talked about in Ephesians already how we're all, as individual believers, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. 
And we've seen in chapter 2 how the Spirit indwells the church. And so this would be the idea. If we all have the same Spirit leading us, should it really be that hard for us to get on the same page and walk together as one in unity? Not if we're following the Spirit. Now, we'll come back to this later, but I think the implication would be is if we're divided, we're not walking in the Spirit together. We're in the flesh because the only thing that brings division into the church is the flesh. It's sin. Uh, he says here, there's one hope of our calling, which we've seen uh, in Ephesians is the effectual calling of God uh, to salvation, the work that God does to, to bring us to himself. There's one Lord, Jesus. And this is kind of like saying there's one spirit. If we all have the same Lord and we're all surrendered to him, we ought to be pulling together in the same direction, right? He says there's one uh, baptism. And so when we talk about uh, baptism, you know, what, what does that refer to? Well, it could be the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Could be talking about water baptism. Personally, I think it's talking about the baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ that's then pictured by water baptism. And he says here there's one faith. Now, when we talk about faith, this is important, and we'll come back to this a little bit later. But usually we think of faith as a verb. Like uh, if, if I said, I trust Sharon Gibson, I'm, I'm, I'm expressing faith. That's normally how it's used in Scripture. But that's not how, not how it's always used in Scripture. In fact, over 30 times in the New Testament, it's used as a noun. And that's how it's used here. And when it's used as the faith, Jude calls it the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What it's talking about is Christianity. It's talking about the body of doctrine revealed in the New Testament. What we're talking about is there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God is holy and he's love and, and all the attributes of God that the Bible gives, that God is our creator, that we're made in his image, every person. So every person has value and dignity and worth because we're made in the image of God. But yet uh, the image of God has been distorted within us by sin because we're all sinners by nature and choice. We're fallen people who live in a fallen world and our sins separate us from God and result in physical and spiritual death. But God, because of his great love for us and in order to glorify himself, has chosen uh, to save out a call out and save a people for himself. And we can't save ourselves, so he came to save us. The eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh, became the God-man, added humanity to his deity where he's fully God, truly human, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, bodily rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, where he is now from there ministering to, ascending his spirit, forming his church. And those who are a part of the church are all the redeemed. Who are the redeemed? They are those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ alone, who is the only way to God. So salvation is in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God. God alone. Jesus is come to, someday coming back uh, to uh, set up his kingdom on the earth to rule and reign forever. There's an eternal hell. There's an eternal heaven. And we're all going to stand before God. And Jesus is our only hope when we do that. That's Christianity in a nutshell. That's the faith. And you have to believe those things to be a Christian. There's a lot of peripheral things we can agree to disagree about. But that's what we're talking about, the faith. And that's what we unite around. And then he says there's one God 
and Father of all. So he says we're one in Christ. We're one under the Father. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one, fa- one, one faith, one Father, one baptism. We are one. Now, I want us to think for a minute about what we've already seen in Ephesians that he did to bring about this oneness and, and, and what this looks like. So think about for a minute our position. In Ephesians 2, uh, verses 5 and 6, we saw that we're made alive together with Christ, seated in the heavenly places in Him. We saw later in that chapter that we're reconciled together in one body. We're reconciled to the Father. We're reconciled to one another. We're one. We're together in Christ. We're not just individually saved. Uh, I mean, we are individually saved by Christ, but then we're brought corporately together into the body of Christ. Think about our relationships together. Uh, We've seen that we're one new man, that uh, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's ultimately one race, the human race, but there's no division between Jew and Gentile in the church. We're like a new humanity. We're, we're like a third race. We're God's people. That's who we are. We're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We're members of God's family. In other words, we're all sons and daughters of the same father, so we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who we are. And, and think about what Jesus did in order to make this happen. Uh, I mean, if, if you look back at, at what he did on the cross to make this happen, like in, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 13, it says that he's made peace through the blood uh, of his cross, uh, that he's brought us near by the blood of his cross. In verse 16, it says, reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. How do we have this oneness? It's through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. So in other words, what this means is, if we're bringing disunity into the body of Christ, it's like we're insulting the cross of Christ. It's like we're spitting on the blood of Jesus because it was his blood that purchased this unity for us. It's through the cross. It's by his broken body, his spilled blood, that we are the body of Christ. And then there's one thing I want to show you outside of Ephesians. And that is we're called to this oneness in order to honor God. And be a witness to the world. If you look in John chapter 17 for a minute, if you want to turn there, be on the screen. John chapter 17 is an amazing passage of scripture. It's Jesus praying to his father shortly before he's betrayed and crucified. He knows what's coming. And it's kind of like his final words almost. And, And he says, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Think about it. That's pretty crazy. Jesus was praying for us before he went to the cross. And here's part of what he prayed. He prayed that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now, Now think about it for a second. Think about the oneness between the Father and the Son. When was the only time in all of history that that was ever broken? On the cross. What broke it? 
sin. It was broken because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It was broken because Jesus was absorbing the wrath of God as the punishment for our sins. God was treating him like he had lived the life that we had lived so he can now treat us like we've lived the life that Jesus lived. And so there is that separation. But the point for what we're talking about here is that sin is what broke that. And if the oneness, if the unity of the body of Christ is broken today, it's sin that breaks it. Remember what Ephesians 4.3 says? It, it doesn't say endeavoring to obtain the unity of the Spirit. It says endeavoring to keep. It's something that's already there. It's something we already have. But uh, going back to, to John chapter 17... Uh, you know, at the end of verse 20 there, or verse 21, he, he says that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, think about it. If Christians can't get along with each other, if there's no love, if we're fighting all the time and we're arguing over peripheral issues and see divisions and people get hurt in church all the time and there's church splits and all these kind of things, why should they believe in the Jesus that we talk about? And you know why a lot of people are turned off to church and don't want to go to church? It's because they've been to church. And this is what they've experienced. And it's ungodly. And it's of the devil. We're one in Christ. The entire body of Christ. But we certainly need to function that way as a particular local church. Um, This is something that really kind of painted a picture for me. But a couple of weeks ago, John Harrell and I went to a meeting in in Nashville or Asheville on behalf of our Honduras ministry. And I mentioned this on Mission Sunday that we were just entering into a partnership with White Horse Missions to work together in Honduras to, for them to, to join together in the training, some of the training stuff we're doing, that kind of thing. And so John and I drove over to Asheville to meet with a couple of their board members. And during the course of that, one of them said something that really stuck with me. And so we were talking about the fact that you know, there's a lot of mission teams that go in and out of Honduras. And sometimes, uh, you know, when you're on a plane, flying back and forth from there, I've been 30 sometimes, I've lost count at, at some point. But, you know, sometimes there, there won't be, uh, you won't see much of this, but sometimes almost an entire flight will be mission teams. And, and you say, well, how do you know uh, they're, they're mission teams? Well, it's because of the T-shirts that they're wearing. Okay? Now, I said this in the first service, and I think everybody thought this is like disunity, which it may be, but uh, I'm falling. So uh, I don't wear like mission team T-shirts when I go to Honduras because what, over the years, some of the best mission opportunities I've had in Honduras have actually been on the planes going back and forth. And so I don't want to like identify myself as just like a weird-looking Christian in a mission team T-shirt I, to start off a conversation with somebody. I'd just like to kind of meet them on, on their ground, if that makes sense. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry for all the mission teams I just offended. But anyway, probably shouldn't have said that. I should have learned from the first service, shouldn't I? Anyway, so... Um, but it's like sometimes you'll be on a plane, there's like the red 
shirt mission team and the yellow shirt mission team and the green shirt mission team and the blue shirt mission team and, and all these kind of things. And, and, and their board member just made the point that uh, what if we all were coordinated together and we were all working together and, and, and how much more could we accomplish? And, and I think that's almost like a picture of the body of Christ because we've got all these tribes and we've got all these camps and all these denominations and all these different things within the body. You've got the red shirt team and the yellow shirt team and the green shirt team and the blue shirt team. But if we just all come together under the cross of Jesus Christ and work together, how much more of an impact will we make in the world? Live like we're one because Jesus has made us one. And Pastor Philip told me something recently that, that when he met with uh, the Micronesians after they were here on uh, August the 4th, a couple Sundays ago. If you were here for that, that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Um, and that they're actually not in the service, but you, you can pray for this. Next Sunday, they're, they're going to be here. They're going to do a service of their own at 1230. They're going to baptize some more people uh, then. So, um, but, 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 but the thing that he told Philip uh, that... that uh, I wanted to share with you is, is it told them, you know, they haven't necessarily been treated the best by white people in Morristown, but they felt more welcome at True Life than anywhere they'd ever been. Now, I expected that, so, but that's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be one in Christ. There's not racial distinctions, ethnic distinctions, color distinctions, socioeconomic distinctions, class distinctions. Through the cross, we are one in Christ, and that's how we're supposed to treat each other. We're on the same team. We're not in competition with each other. Uh, that night, you know, we had reset. Some of us went to uh, El Cezanne and had dinner, and I saw Mark Campbell, who's the pastor at Faith Baptist, church and, and his wife and a couple of other people in there and talked to them before we left. And uh, of course, uh, maybe everybody doesn't know this, but you know, we bought this building from Faith Baptist Church. And it, it was more than a business transaction though, because they worked with us. They actually carried $125,000 of the cost with five years, no interest, no payments, so that we could put the money that we had that we needed to put into renovating the building. So I feel like they've helped us, you know, be in this building. I feel like we shared together in, in ministry. And so I told him the story of what happened that morning because I thought it would encourage him. And over the years, I've had opportunities to kind of try to share, you know, bits and pieces of what's going on at, at, at True Life with them because I want them to feel a part of what's going on here because they made an investment in what's going on here. And he was excited about it. Like, I'm going to tell our church about this on Wednesday night. And that's how we need to view the body of Christ. That it's not just individual churches, but we're all in this together. We're on the same team. We're to invest in each other. We're to be there for each other, to cheer one another on, to help one another, and ultimately to work together to glorify God and reach the gospel, reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the point of all this anyway. Jesus died to make us one. So now we're supposed to live like we're one. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Uh, because apparently it's, it, it's not easy. Right? I mean, if it were easy, there wouldn't be a half a gazillion different denominations, right? There wouldn't be all the different church splits and First Baptist Church and Second Baptist Church and Third Baptist Church and 47th Baptist Church and, and so on and, and, and so forth, right? I mean, you get two people together, you're guaranteed to have three opinions, right? 
especially if you're married. But uh, <laughs> probably shouldn't meddle there. Um, but uh, anyway, so if we're going to live like we're one, how are we going to do this? Well, uh, there's two commands that are in these verses that obeying these commands uh, will, I think, enable us to actually live like we're one. Uh, first of all, if we're going to live like we're one, we have to develop godly character. We have to develop godly character. Let's go back to Ephesians 4.1, and I'm going to show you something here in the first couple of verses, okay? So Paul says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, remember, we talked about walk, is actions, it's lifestyle. And he says, walk worthy. And then how does he tell us to do this? He says in verse 2, we're to do it with um, lowliness, with gentleness, with long-suffering. And then when it talks about bearing with one another, that's kind of the same thing. That's amplifying what he's saying by long-suffering. And then he speaks of love. Okay? So these are character qualities. And so I want to give you a principle that I think is very important. It applies in church, but it applies in any relationship. Uh, if, actually, if you'll practice this principle, it'll transform your marriage. And here's the principle. The quality of our character determines the quality of our relationships. That's what he's implying here. The quality of our character determines the quality of our relationships. In other words, if you want to have the right kind of relationship, be the right kind of person. There is no other way around it. I mean, a relationship by definition involves two or more people. Is this correct? I mean, I know this is pretty deep, but I mean, is, is, is this correct? Are, are you with me? It involves two or more people. So if you have a relationship of two people, and those two people want to have an awesome relationship... But they're both immature, selfish, self-centered as individuals. How are those two immature, selfish, self-centered individuals going to come together and build a loving, awesome relationship? You got one, Charlie? <laughs> And, 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 and here, uh, listen, listen to me. I mean, I know this, this sermon isn't about marriage, but a lot of you are married. Some of you want to be married. This is the hallmark myth. That marriage is just this magical, two people meet around a Christmas tree in a hallmark Christmas movie, and, you know, they knew each other growing up, and, um, you know, they come back into town, and... They come back together. Well, you only have to watch one. And, and, and you know, I do have a wife and two daughters. So, um, but, and, and then everything magically, it's just happy f forever after, right? Does that, is that how real life works? And here's the thing. We've been taught that romance is the key to a relationship when biblically character is the key to a relationship. Now, romance is good, but that's kind of like the icing 
Character's the cake. See, good intentions don't build good relationships. And, and ultimately, if we want to have good relationships, if it requires good character, good character requires the working of the Holy Spirit because since we're sinful, it doesn't come to us naturally. I, 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 want, I want to show you something. In, in Galatians chapter 5, right? If you put Galatians 5, 22, 23 on, on, on the screen. You know, in Ephesians 5, 18, it tells us to be filled with the Spirit, to, live, uh, to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 tells us to walk in the Spirit, uh, you know, to confess our sins, surrender to Jesus, live under the control, live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice something here. It says the fruit of the Spirit, the result of life when the Spirit's in control, and this certainly uh, isn't what happens when the flesh is in control because he had just given us a list of sins that come out of us when the flesh is in control. But I want you to know something particular here. Through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Now, uh, Ryan, if you would, put Ephesians 4.2 on, on, on the screen. I want you to see something here. It, it's told us to walk and how do we walk? With lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and in love. You see the continuity between the two lists? Our relationships don't get better by trying harder. Our relationships get better by submitting more to the Spirit. And then when the fruit of the Spirit is, uh, that's what's happening in us, it's going to spill over into the people that are close to us. That's a biblical way to build healthy relationships at home, at work, at school, at church, wherever you may be. It comes back to who we are. Now, just to, to look at these particular characteristics for just a minute. He says lowliness, which means humility. And I said this earlier in the series, I'm going to say it again. The key to humility, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. It's focusing more on Jesus. The key to being humble is looking at the cross. And as Tim Keller says, the only thing that can make a person confident and humble at the same time is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross certainly humbles us. I mean, what do I have to boast in if it took the violent, bloody, torturous death of the Son of God to save me? I must have nothing to offer. But at the same time, I can live with confidence, but it's not a proud confidence because it's not a confidence in myself. It's a confidence in him. Now, that really leads into gentleness because gentleness could also be translated meekness. And you know what meekness is? It's not being a wimp. It's not being a pushover. Meekness is a humble confidence. Meekness is strength under control. It's being strong enough to stand when you need to, but not being pushy enough to demand your own way. Um, one of my favorite phrases, uh, I, one, one of Abraham Lincoln's biographers described him this way. I love this phrase. It's something, I'm not there, but it's something I've sought to emulate in my life. But uh, he, called, he described Abraham Lincoln as velvet steel. That's what it means to be meek. Velvet steel. Strong enough to stand when we need to stand, but not in a haughty, proud self-centered, overbearing kind of way, but in a humble kind of way. To be soft uh, when we need uh, to be soft. And then he, he talks about long-suffering. There's actually a couple of different Greek words that are translated as long-suffering or patience. 
One, not this one, but there, there's another word that refers specifically to being uh, patient, like with circumstances, like with things. You know, we can be impatient with things or circumstances. Like when I it was in college one time and uh, got mad and frustrated with myself and broke a golf club on a tree, uh, I, I, I sinned by, you know, uh, being impatient, I guess, with my golf club, really myself. Or um, y'all, y'all ever, like, talk to, uh, like, you, you call something and there's like this automated voice thing, and like you're just wanting to talk to a person. You know what I'm saying? Um, and like, I mean, when they work well, they're great. But when they work, when they don't work right, I mean, it's like, I mean, in the one for our prescription provider for our insurance company, it never works right. And, and, and this is kind of embarrassing because I'm 48 and a pastor, but I end up yelling at a computer sometimes. I mean, I, I just, it's, it's just like, I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's not godly, but I mean, that's, that's like being impatient with, you know, a thing or a circumstance. This is talking about being patient with people. And I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. This may be like a, like a just an insight you want to write down, but sometimes people require patience. You ever notice that? I mean, sometimes your family members require patience, right? Believe it or not, you actually require patience sometimes. I mean, I know I'm your pastor. I've, I, I've, I've noticed. Uh, I mean, I require patience, right? We need patience with people. And, but, you know, here's the, here's the problem, though, when people, like, just hop from church to church or something happens and they run away, they're missing out on their sanctification. Because... We need to be patient. Sometimes we need people to be patient with us. If we're going to be one in relationships sometimes, sometimes we've got to work through things instead of running away from things. Sometimes we've got to put up with things. And if people are like, well, you don't know what I've experienced in church. You know, I've been treated, all these kind of things. And I know sometimes that's very legitimate. But don't say, I don't know. I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm not on everybody's Christmas card list in case you didn't know that. I mean... If you're going to be in church, you're going to get hurt in church sometimes. Sometimes somebody's going to get mad at you or that kind of thing. Be an adult, deal with it, work through it, and grow and move on instead of running away. All right? And then the last thing he talks about here is love. And Jesus said the way that the world will know that we're his disciples is if we have love for one another. Do we love each other? Are we there for each other? You know, love's an action. You know, we uh, had our house uh, remodeled this summer, and we actually stayed with the family in our small group for nine days. And they took care of us. Truth is great. That's love. That's what it means to be the church. Uh, we were going to Nashville a few weeks ago, and the transmission went out on our van and exit before the Crossville exit. And, uh, you know, I have a friend in Crossville, Josh Carville. He's preached here before. Some of you know him. So we called Josh. He got us hooked up with a mechanic. But he actually gave us his van so we could finish our trip uh, to Nashville. It was Lily's birthday. And uh, we, he offered for us to keep it as long as we needed to. That's what it means to be the church. We love each other. We're there for each other. We serve each other. We minister to each other. But what we do comes out of who we are. So if we're going to live in unity, it starts with developing godly character and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the second command here, and we'll finish with this, is that if we're going to live like we're one, we have to make a determined effort to guard the unity that we have in the Spirit. Not to get it, but to guard it. 
Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so endeavor means determined effort. Keep means to guard something that's in your possession. Romans 12, 18 says, If it's possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. One of the things that God says he hates, one of the seven deadly sins, Proverbs 6, 19, is one who sows discord among brethren. We're to guard the unity of the Spirit. And so... Think about it this way. Think about guarding. You know, we, we have this phrase in the United States, you know, like as secure as Fort Knox. Well, uh, how secure is Fort Knox? Uh, well, it's surrounded by a steel fence. Uh, the building itself is made of concrete lying granite and reinforced by steel to help it withstand attacks. The U.S. Treasury says Fort Knox is, quote, equipped with the latest and most modern protective devices. Of course, they're not going to tell everybody what those are for security's sake, but rumor has it that the vault grounds are surrounded by landmines and electric fences, that machine guns go off when a laser is triggered, and a radar keeps watch over the area. There's, there's four guard boxes at each corner of the building, uh, plus sentry boxes by the entrance. It shares its space with an army base. Um, and uh, if, if somebody can even make it this far, the door to the vault is made of steel and concrete and weighs more than 20 tons. No single person knows how to get in. Instead, certain staff members uh, know just one of several combinations, and they'd have to uh, dial them separately to be able to open uh, the vault. So we go to great extremes to guard the the gold reserves of the United States of America. And really what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, 3, is that we are to go to great extremes to guard the unity of the body of Christ. And because it was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, it's more valuable than all the gold reserves that are housed at Fort Knox. He says to endeavor, to strive, to do what we have to do, to guard, to keep this unity. Well, how do we do that? Let me end with just a few quick practical things, okay? Uh, Let's let's try to flesh this out, what it looks like in real life. So, number one, I would say if we're going to guard the unity of the Spirit, we need to talk to each other instead of about each other. Now, this is just life 101, but it's actually in the Bible, too. I mean, Jesus said, Matthew 18, 15, that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If your brother hears you, you've gained your brother. I think if we would just obey that one teaching of Jesus, that it'd solve about 90% of the relational difficulties in the world. If, if you have two non-crazy people, most things can be resolved uh, if uh, you actually talk about them. Now, if you've got crazy people, then that may be a whole different story, but I'm assuming none of you are crazy, so you can work things out if you go and, and, and talk to somebody about it. Talk to each other, not about each other. It's a command of Scripture. I mean, Proverbs 16, 28 says, A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer, some translations translated gossip, separates the best of friends. You say, what's gossip? It's if you're not part of the solution or you're not part of the problem, stay out of it or you're being a gossip. Listen, there's a lot of stuff. It may or may not be true, but we don't need to repeat it. 
And if somebody's talking to you, try to get them to talk to the person who's actually a part of the problem. I mean, if you say, oh, I just get tired of people gossiping to me, try that one time and see if the gossip hotline kind of takes a different route after that point. Um, you know, and, and not everything you hear is true. And, you know, I wish people in church would stop quoting somebody. Like somebody said. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody said. Or, you know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs, it says that if you only hear one side of the story, of course that person's going to seem right. You don't know nearly as much as you think you know just because of what somebody's told you. There's always two sides to every story. Sometimes people lie. It may be true, but it may not be. Don't treat it like it's true. Don't pass it on unless someone is sharing that they've been abused and then do what you need to do to, uh, to report it to the appropriate people. But don't believe everything you hear. And, and don't just, I mean, what do we usually do? Somebody does or says something we think's wrong or is misunderstanding or whatever. Instead of talking to that person, you call your friend, right? Text your friend. If you're really dysfunctional, you post it on Facebook and uh, try to get some, because you're insecure and you want to get some people on your side and talk to each other, not about each other, okay? Uh, second, sometimes we just got to forgive each other. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. It's the idea that forgiven people forgive. Graced people become conduits of grace. Unforgiveness, bitterness destroys our soul. It can destroy our bodies and our minds too. Sometimes by the grace of God, we need to trust God to deal with somebody and kind of let that person off our hook, so to speak. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you make excuses, doesn't mean in every case you trust that person, doesn't mean in every case you reconcile the relationship. There are consequences of actions. Uh, it takes two to reconcile and it takes one to forgive. There are some people that you probably should not reconcile with. I mean, if you've been a victim in a certain case, you know, that may uh, very well be the case. But we are commanded by God and it's good for us to forgive. And so is there a brother or sister in Christ? that you've had a conflict with, that you have something against, that there's a broken relationship with? Is there somebody you need to talk to? Is there somebody you need to forgive? Is there something that you need to work out? That's the godly adult thing to do, not run away from it. Three, and this is, this is a little more positive maybe. Uh, scripture tells us to esteem others higher than ourselves and to look out for each other's uh, needs. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So this isn't just about some things we shouldn't do or say. It is what we should do as the body of Christ, that we're not just thinking about ourselves, but we're thinking about each other, that we're ministering to one another, we're in relationship with each other, praying for each other, serving each other, encouraging each other, bearing one another's burdens. That's why you need to be in a small group. If you're not in a small group, that would be my challenge for some of you out of this message to let us help you get plugged into a small group. You can talk to me or Philip. You can contact our office. You can fill out the connection card in the bulletin and turn it in, check the blank that says small groups. Uh, you may say, well, I don't like hanging around with people. Well, 
that's not really the issue. The issue is scripture tells us that we need each other, that we belong to each other within the body of Christ. And honestly, if that's your attitude, you need to grow in your understanding of scripture and in your walk with God. And it's not always going to be roses, but that's okay. God uses relational difficulties sometimes to sanctify us and grow us and mature us and develop us. Isn't that what marriage is? I mean, marriage is the most sanctifying thing there is in the world because it exposes how selfish and self-centered that we are. And, 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 you know, sometimes we need to be around other people and not just be in our own little bubble. So it might not always be easy, but like the example I, I shared earlier and a whole bunch of others I could share, a lot of times it will be the greatest blessing that you'll experience in your life because that's how we grow. We need each other. And then last thing, last one here. We need uh, to learn the difference between dividing over truth, over essential doctrine, and in dividing over secondary matters. Now, I said all this about unity. There is a time to divide. I don't really have time to get into this. You know, there's a time to kick people out of the church. And if people are, are, are uh, you know, being divisive, if they're teaching false doctrine... The elders of the church are supposed to practice church discipline. But the issue there is the false doctrine, that's what's dividing because it's outside the faith. And so, uh, you know, sometimes there's division because we don't stand for truth. You know, the Bible says, the faith once we're all delivered for the saints. But sometimes there's division in a church because people are fighting over secondary matters and their opinions and their personal convictions and things that aren't actually spelled out in the Bible. Romans 14.1 uh, talks about disputes over doubtful things. Doubtful things are like gray areas. And what he's saying is we, that we're not to divide over those kind of things. Uh, we're to stand for the truth. We're to be still there. But when it's secondary matters, we're to be velvet there. So uh, just because another Christian disagrees agrees with you about the details of the coming of Christ or whatever kind of secondary issue, that's not worth dividing over. Let's unite around the cross and around the faith and, and, and work together, love each other, walk together, and show the world what it really means to be the church that was purchased by Christ on the cross. Jesus died to make us one. Let's live like we're one. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And